Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to the Almost Presidents podcast weekly coverage of the 2024 presidential election. In a crowded primary field full of losers or almost presidents, we're here to keep you up to speed with the news that you need to know. On today's episode, Trump puts concerns over becoming a vengeful dictator to bed by giving a projected timeline for how long that dictatorship would last. The fourth Republican debate happened. Never back down which is a super PAC endorsing Ron DeSantis, backed down from a donor event due to lack of interest in the candidate. Liz Cheney for president? And to wrap up, feeling the Burgum in memory of the 2024 Doug Burgum campaign. So starting out, this quote has made the rounds of pretty much everything that I've listened to, watched, and read. So Trump, in a taped town hall with Sean Hannity, was asked a question that's on a lot of people's minds. And that's whether he would use the presidency to, quote, abuse power, to break the law, to use the government to go after people. Sean Hannity asked him this. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. And Trump essentially responded, look, I'll be a dictator, but only for a day. Saying, quote, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, no, no. Other than day one, we're closing the border and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. So, Kevin, I don't know about you. I feel so much better now. Just for a day. I have to say, having now reread that question, which I, I did read it initially, but you know, now rereading it, that is a softball question if ever there was a softball question. You know, Hannity asked him, you aren't literally going to be a dictator, are you? And he's like, well, <laughs> so... Yeah, just just absurd. Absurd statement. I also noted quite famously, most dictators do claim that their dictatorship is just going to be temporary. It's just going to be just as long as we need to to deal with the communists, the anarchists or whatever minority group needs to be dealt with at the time. Um, and yet, for some reason, it just it never happens. So weird how that works. But, you know, I guess we're meant to think that Trump is different, you know, and that he's only going to spend the Constitution for a day and be a dictator for a day, I guess. And there is a speed and effectiveness, admittedly, when it comes to dictatorships, because you don't have to put anything by a vote. It just comes down to one guy's decision. But it's just kind of goofy, right? I mean, it's almost like we go back to to Rome, right, in the Republican days with the Senate, asking Julius Caesar, like, hey, look, you're, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? And Julius Caesar just responding, no, no, no. Other than day one, we're crossing the Rubicon. We're marching into Rome. We're truth and truth and truth. And after that, I'm not a dictator. It's over. And I have to ask, I mean, it's if we make this Rome comparison, do we have a Brutus in this scenario to get this guy in the back? Or are all these just anti-Second Amendment libs just waiting for age McDonald's or Diet Coke to take Trump out? It's, it's a fair point. I, I think it's pretty obvious that in the Trump administration, your being welcomed into the Trump administration this time around is probably going to be conditional on your just spineless loyalty. Just complete undying loyalty to Donald Trump. There's going to be no General Mattis, these types of guys who have their own independent identity and thought process. None of those guys will be present this time around. It will be Rudy Giuliani's and Mike, the my pillow guy. Right, right. And there's not really a good track record of dictators who took on power for a day giving it back afterwards. I, I do. I got to admit, I do like Seth Meyers reaction to this where uh, he says, quote, oh, well, if it's just for one day, sure, by all means, what could possibly go wrong? That's like Jason in Friday the 13th saying he'll only go on a murderous rampage the first day of summer camp. And then on day two, canoeing, end quote, which I mean, Kevin, I don't know if you're into the Friday the 13th movies. They're a guilty pleasure of mine. It only takes Jason one day to kill all those kids. In every movie, only it only takes him one night. He's incredibly effective. 
So there's going to be nobody left to canoe the next day. So if he is able to seize onto this dictatorship, which we can talk about whether our institutions will hold and all these things, you know, fear, the optimism, whatever, we'll get into it. But there's just not a good track record of people saying, all right, that was fun. Let's get back to democracy. Well, yeah, because I think the thing is, is that just generally speaking, nobody ever just says, oh, yeah, we're just going to be we're going to do this for a day and then we're done. What usually happens is it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this for a short period of time until we can get rid of all of the communists or all of the capitalists, you know, whoever the fuck you want to lock up. And then after, you know, that time period is up, be it a, a couple months, a couple years, whatever, they're like, well, you know, they're really resilient. You know, we, we just we, we need more time to take care of all the, the evil, I guess, in this case, Democrats. And then, you know, <laughs> at some point it's like, well, I guess it's over. I guess Constitution's gone at that point. So, you know, there's always a new reason to extend the suspension of the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think what you're saying is true too. also, whereas like if he actually did get it all done in the day, like what would that mean? It probably mean mass lockups of dissidents, huge amounts of like crackdown on people's rights and stuff. So, yeah, insane look, statement, insane statement. Absolutely insane. I mean, it's not even a matter of him saying the quiet part out loud. He's shouting it to the rooftops and people are just lapping it right up, which is wild to me. I mean, I'm just thinking about the damage that you can do in one day. I mean, we went to the jet game two weeks ago with dad. Um, and I'm just thinking about the damage I did to my own body at that tailgate, let alone the damage that the freaking jets did out on the field. God damn, they freaking stink. Um, you could do a lot of damage in a day. I found this Bill Clinton quote that I thought was kind of interesting because I thought it kind of perhaps speaks to this moment. Uh, at the time, it was speaking to the fact that like in the wake of 9-11, how could all of these people glom themselves onto George W. Bush, this fucking idiot? And Bill Clinton said, when people feel uncertain, they'd rather have someone strong and wrong than weak and right. And I, I mean, my opinion, I think there's ways that this quote could apply to our moment, right? There's a lot of things going on in the world and domestically to feel uncertain about. And Joe Biden is coming off to a lot of people as weak. I think the operative word there is is uncertain, right? When people feel uncertain, what they want is certainty. They don't want someone who's going to go up there and be like, well, you know, if we do this, maybe this will happen. You know, here's a strategy that might work, blah, blah, blah. Like they don't want the honest <laughs> answers, which are often complicated, confusing, difficult to understand, difficult to accept. Uh, they well, want someone who's going to go up and potentially. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Involved dealing with people who you disagree with deeply. What they want instead is, is someone who's going to go up and say, I know who the enemies are. I know where they are. I'm going to lock them up and then everything's going to be better. Like that's a much more certain feeling than, and pe yeah, people don't like uncertainty. And so they're going to seek it. And yeah, like the quote unquote, like strong and wrong man is going to, is going to have that where, yeah, like the Joe Bidens of the world probably are never going to be able to exude that kind of energy. So I've become very interested since i mean honestly since 2014 just about how all of these different really smart people from all over the political spectrum have tried to strategize ways to bring down trump and have always been wrong and i, I mean you could take that to i was reading in the i feel like i brought this up in at least i think this is the third episode the mitt romney biography about how he basically spent his whole campaign trying not to say the wrong thing. And even with small little gaffes that he made, they caused him irreparable damage. So for him and his wife just watching on TV, this guy Trump just rolling out saying whatever the goddamn hell he wants, things get pulled from years ago, the grab him by the P word comment, just horrific things and how he does not care. He actually uses it to leverage the news cycle and then the folks that were thinking, okay, we can beat him by ignoring him. We can beat him by 
taking him on and challenging the things that he says. We can take him on by showing that he's inexperienced and that he's a clown. We could take him on by showing that he's dangerous. And just time and time again, none of that seems to work. I mean, I guess it somehow worked in 2020, given I, I do have a theory that if Biden was out on campaign road without the pandemic as a circumstance, right? And people got to see him all the time, might've been a different result. But I did find something interesting in Dan Pfeiffer, who used to be a uh, advisor to politicians like Barack Obama, his his message box, Substack, an interesting kind of wargaming that I hadn't seen before. But before before I get into that, I mean, Kevin, did you see any like strategies that you thought were interesting that that didn't work or that seemed like they might work? Because it's just so interesting. These people that are so goddamn smart, who have all this experience behind them, trying to think of ways to beat this guy. And it's just not working. I mean, I still go to Donald Trump as he's Teflon Don. A lot of the strategies were kind of appealing to the wrong group of people to begin with. I, I don't think that the Republican base is the type of people who want like this really heady strategy wonk talking to them about, you know, what is the best way to form strategic alliances to combat Iran? Like they don't care about that. And and frankly, most people don't care about that. Democrats don't care about that either. Although I think Democrats like in, intelligence is more of a uh, virtue that like an apparent virtue for Democrats, like someone who seems like they're kind of dorky and quirky and wonky is something that Democrats like. But I don't think it's something that Republicans like. So yeah, these guys like Jeb Bush who tried to come at it. And and frankly, even I think Nikki Haley a little bit, who try to come at this from the perspective of like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It doesn't matter. No one cares about that. Um, so yeah, I don't think that works. I think the one strategy that has the potential to work that I've seen Ron DeSantis start to use, but I think he should have been doing this from day one. I think he should have been doing it as Florida governor before he even decided uh, or declared that he was going to run for president. I think the one strategy that has the potential to work is to say he said he was going to take on the deep state, but he did not. He sided with the deep state. He joined hands with the deep state. He put Anthony Fauci upon us. He put Christopher Ray in charge of the FBI. He put Jay Powell in charge of the Fed and caused all this inflation. Like, And going back to like strong and wrong, that's a strong and wrong <laughs> approach, right? Like I, I do think a lot of those people that I just listed you know, probably actually did do a good job ultimately. But I think that's a, a strategy that can work because it actually appeals to the values of the voters that Donald Trump gets. But I think nobody had the political courage to make that argument from the jump. The closest person was Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis is kind of making that argument now, but it's just it's too late and he should be making it more forcefully. And it should be the thrust of his reason for why he's running for president is I'm going to actually fulfill the promises that Donald Trump abandoned. That's the only argument I think has the potential to work, personally. Right. And we'll get into the debate section of this podcast about how DeSantis, in a way, wouldn't even do that on the stage, wouldn't even show that he had the courage to truly go after Trump. But something that I thought was interesting about this uh, message box from Dan Pfeiffer was he kind of talks to that part of the Bill Clinton quote about weakness, and his point, so he came up with this whole list in the essay, essentially, about ways to take on Trumpism. And the one that really that I wanted to share with you is he says, quote, authoritarianism comes from weakness. And I thought that was a really interesting blend of this. Hey, look, this is why Trump seems so scary, because he's actually a really weak guy. So this is the thrust of Pfeiffer's claim here. So he says, quote, I'm not arguing that Democrats should ignore Trump's offenses against democracy. Far from it. It's not if we talk about Trump's authoritarianism, it's how we talk about it. When talking about Trump's authoritarian plans, frame them as emanating from weakness, not strength. Donald Trump is not a strong person. He is a coward, incapable of winning elections or advancing his extremist popular agenda without resorting to illegal anti-democratic methods. He can't win an election fair and square and is afraid to even try. He's running for president for himself, not the public. His campaign is a desperate ploy 
to avoid facing the consequences of his many illegal actions, end quote. And I think that's great. And we could get into that. But I also think that these folks like, I mean, certainly Dan Pfeiffer, but Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, Chris Christie, they're reaching the people who already get the message. And that's the, ex- that's the exact problem. The people who really need to hear this have been red-pilled so badly or are just not going to listen to it. it. It might just be, again, what you're saying, like a, a heady strategy that sounds great on paper, but ultimately doesn't work because it's not reaching the people it's intended to reach, it, that it needs to reach for there to make a difference. I, I do think this is a good point. Like, I think you have to understand your audience, right? And I remember when Trump first got elected and there were all these conversations about strong men, the the concept of like a strong man, man in politics of guys like Benito Mussolini and stuff like that. And I always thought this was like just such silly framing because I think for the demographics of people who like Trump and frankly, for a lot of the demographics of people who don't like Trump, uh, or for people who are kind of neutral on Trump, being strong is good. Strong is a positive quality. And so to attach strong man to a person is to say, yeah, they're a strong person. Like they're, and I, and we even use this, this framing in our regular conversations. Like we'll say someone's a strong leader and that's not considered to be a negative quality. So I, I do think that's true is like, if you're constantly framing things as like, oh, he's going to be this like big, strong dictator. who's going to like whip everybody into shape. Like a lot of people think that would be cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think understanding that your audience interprets strength as a positive quality is important. And I do think what he's saying is true. And I think Joe Biden has kind of made this a point on like the international stage that actually a lot of people have this perception that like authoritarian countries are like stronger and, you know, more powerful than democracies. But I mean, I don't personally, I don't think that's even true. But I think the argument that Joe Biden has tried to make is actually liberal democratic societies are the greatest and most powerful societies on earth. And I think that's one we need to make here at home is that like, yeah, being pro-democracy is something that someone who's confident in their leadership does because they know that they can win elections because they're confident in themselves. Yeah. Um, Rich Trump is not. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. So I think this might be a decent seed to plant in a conversation that's not going already in an ugly direction, just about Trump, that this strongman image that's being projected is coming from a place of weakness. This is a guy who has never won the popular vote. This is a guy who tried to steal an election because he couldn't win it fairly. And honestly, in 2024, I have no doubt that should he lose, he'll do the same thing again, or he'll try to. So just the idea that, hey, yeah, looks like a tough guy. You want to know why? Because he's weak. And here's why. So I thought that was interesting. Definitely something that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis could use in their playbook, because perhaps they're maybe the last ditch efforts to reach folks that are in that uh, crowd of potentially swayable voters. But I think they'd have better luck kind of trying to get third party uh, curious people or people who weren't planning on going out at all to come and vote for them based on the th- the thrust of the argument. Yeah, agreed. All right. So I got to be honest, Kevin, I didn't stay up for it. I watched a replay of it two days later, but the fourth Republican presidential debate happened in Alabama. What were some of your initial thoughts before we dive in a little bit deeper as to what happened here? I didn't stay up to watch it either. I venture a guess that most people did not. The viewership on these things, I think, is just steady downward decline. But some impressions that I had off the top of my head, I think it was obvious to me, at least, that Nikki Haley was basically under attack the whole time from pretty much everybody except Chris Christie. And I think that's probably a good sign for her campaign because I... I still don't know how serious Christie is about wanting to actually win the nomination or thinking that he can. And so he might be trying to play the long game and like thinking in terms of like, okay, how can I prop up somebody who's also a good alternative? But um, yeah, so I thought that's 
probably a good sign for her campaign is that she's getting attacked. Chris Christie, I thought, kind of went all out. He attacked, again, pretty much everybody on stage except Nikki Haley. But um, I'm kind of wondering, is it too late? Like, is it too late to unleash the Christie that we were all hoping for? Yeah, Um, that's kind of my thought. And then I also kind of got the sense that DeSantis, I mean, I think he's always been trying to do this, but he's trying to bridge a gap between Trump supporters and moderate Republicans. Can you do that? I don't think so. At at this point, I don't think you can. And then my perception is I I really think Vivek is is just kind of out of steam at this point. Um, And I think that just shows from from this this performance. Definitely. Yeah, he was launched into conspiracy theories, really cucking for Trump. I think Christie wasn't even finished with his statement about how many people raised their hands saying that they would still support Trump if he had committed uh, felonies, right? Yeah. Yeah, committed felonies. Yeah. And Christie didn't even have the the full sentence out of his mouth and Vivek raised his hand again for it. So yeah, I definitely agree. Vivek I guess he's down to rate just bringing up conspiracy theories at this point. I mean, I'm trying to figure out like, all right, who is this guy trying to get? I mean, is he, is he solely trying to get people that are on X that are in 4chan, 8chan? Is that who he's going for now? Um, It just seemed to me like he's basically at a point where he's trying to get in Trump's good graces so that he can get a spot in that administration. That seems to me the best hope for him. I completely agree with you. It was a beautiful thing to see Chris Christie finally unleashed on these people. I was waiting for it for three full freaking debates. Where was it? He finally came in, let that prosecutor background shine. And I really liked how he held people accountable for the fact that they were not answering questions, uh, especially when he told DeSantis that he didn't answer the question at all. And then DeSantis kind of went back and forth with him a little bit. The question was put to DeSantis again, and he said the same exact rehearsed response that he had said before that didn't answer the question. So tells you everything you need to know about DeSantis as a debater. I mean, man, these debates, they heard him, but I think this might have been might have been one of his best ones. I did like how nobody played Vivek's games. Like Vivek did his whole little thing, like, oh, you you know, you want to go continue supporting Ukraine. And all these things, but you can't even name three provinces in Ukraine. And nobody picked up that bait and was like, well, here's one, here's two, here's three. Because if you do that, you already lose. Even if you name three, you lose. He tried to kind of poke fun at the fact that Nikki Haley has a uh, Indian background, uh, as he does, and kind of making jokes about like her full name and how she doesn't use it and stuff like that. She didn't pick up the bait. I think at even one point... Vivek just kept going at Haley and the moderators were like, look, do you want to respond to this? And Haley was like, nah, not even worth my time. So the fact that nobody yeah, that was, wanted that was to play a great moment. Game, yeah, I think really did a nice job of just kind of like putting him in his place. I kind of disagree on this point. I think that that moment where he said name three provinces, whatever, I think so Nikki Haley, I don't know if you caught it, but she did actually name the provinces. She did it like two minutes into his tirade about them not being able to name the provinces. She kind of just leans into the mic and she's like Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. Um, oh, did she? I must have missed that. She names okay. the provinces. Yeah. And he shared this. Uh, the reason I know this because he shared this clip on Twitter and he was like, they can't even name the provinces. And in the clip that he shares, she names the provinces. It was like the most absurd thing. Um, he claims that it's the wrong provinces, but I mean, I think there's fighting going on in a lot of uh, different provinces in Ukraine, right? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should send troops over there, but if you were going to send troops over there, it's probably going to be more than three provinces where they're going to be sent, right? But I think she should have said that earlier. I think like right in the beginning of his tirade, she almost should have just interrupted him and just been like, Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea, whatever. Like, say whatever provinces you want, you know, um, uh, I, I just to know. like cut it short. I think you would have been playing his, into his games, though. That That's what he would want. You know, you're just giving him attention yeah. at that point. Yeah, maybe. But like he's, I do think it kind of came off at first, especially like, I, I do think if you weren't paying attention for it, you wouldn't have picked up that she actually said the provinces. And it kind of did look like she didn't know what the provinces were. And I mean, yeah, I, I kind of think that would be absurd if like you are going to be the president of the United States and you can't even tell me what provinces you plan to send the troops to 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 go fight. Like that would be pretty ludicrous. Uh, yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I just think that like 
if you're doing anything to give this clown attention, it's only going to bode well for him because even if he lost the game, you still played it and he still decided what the rules of engagement for that game were. Yeah, you might be right about that, but also you're on the stage with him already. Like you're kind of already playing the game, whether you like it or not. So you might as well win. That's kind of my my thinking, but but you could be right. Yeah, I guess I just like it better that like if you're the one who is determining the rules of the game, that kind of is coming from more of a position of strength than playing somebody else's game that is just kind of silly because ultimately like if he finished his point and she responded to it, like he probably had something in the can to kind of just keep the game going. So if she just kind of kept doing that whole thing, like if you kind of imagine like he's got in his pocket, like all those different fucking like handkerchiefs together that like a magician would have, she like pulls that handkerchief out and she's just going to keep on pulling all day. Cause he's just got another one, you know? Oh yeah. Well then what, you know, then it just turns into like a trivia contest in my opinion. A few more just first impression things. I did think it was the best moderated debate. Uh, I started out a little bit hot and cold about the way that Megyn Kelly kind of came out of the gate. I felt like she was swinging at these guys about like, what are you even doing here? Like, talk to me about the case for your electability when Trump is this far ahead in the polls. And I was like, is she just kind of kissing Trump's ring? It felt like that at first. But the way that it went, I thought these folks standing on the stage really should make a case for that. Like if you are so far behind in the polls, what's the case for your electability? And so I thought that was good. And in the interest of the fact that we both liked Chris Christie unleashed, I think Christie should moderate the next one. I don't think it would feel like Beck and Kelly's weird quote last week about it being a margarita of debates, but I think Chris Christie would make sure that there's a lot less kind of just ranty nonsense and more, hey, this is the question. What is your answer? Yeah, I was going to say it'd be more like the whiskey straight of debates, right? Yeah, yeah. Or the the double shot espresso at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You brought up earlier the point about Vivek calling out Nikki Haley for her name. And I thought that was such a strange point because I just have to imagine that Vivek's like Hindu background is a net negative for him in this campaign. And I think that's demonstrated by the fact that up until very recently and only very, very briefly, he has tried desperately to avoid talking about which God he's referring to, which God or gods, I guess he's referring to when he talks about how important like faith in God is for American culture. I mean, maybe again, maybe we're at the point in the campaign where it's just Hail Mary time, do whatever you think might work. But I can't imagine that. Uh, a group of Republican voters are upset that Nikki Haley isn't using her, you know, indigenous Indian name. Like, I don't think anybody in the Republican primary cares about that. (laughs) Yeah, that that was kind of silly. So I did want to comment on a few of the issues. I think last time we did this, we talked highlights, lowlights. I think now with four candidates on the stage, we can actually get, I mean, as clear as possible, a sense of what some of their stances are on the issues when they're not just kind of politically grandstanding with rehearsed canned stuff. And of course, when I say that, I'm not, I'm not talking about DeSantis at all. So Israel Hamas, whenever they bring that up, I always feel sadly the safest when Nikki Haley talks about it because she just seems to know what she's talking about and know like what's going on in the world out there. I mean, the fact like I got to admit her whole axis of evil argument with Russia, China, and Iran. I, I would say that I buy into that. Those countries are a major threat to the U S and if they're just left to their own devices, it'll be horrific for the wider world. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. I think that some of her arguments I'm a little dubious on just because like how responsible is like China for the actions of Iran? Probably not very. And how much is there actually an access here? To some extent, I think it's more of just like an anti-American access or access rather more so than an access of evil. And I, you know, I in general don't love the 
good evil. I don't think it, you know, helps our understanding of issues. Thinking in binaries either. I guess it's just like the acknowledgement of should Russia take over Ukraine? Why should they stop there? They won't. And she seems like one of the people on the stage who will acknowledge that. Yeah, I think she's by far the best on the Russia-Ukraine yeah, issue, I mean, for sure. Yeah, China is posing a serious threat to Taiwan, and should China ramp that up with military involvement, Joe Biden has said, and it looks like these Republicans, at least Haley, are parroting that the U.S. would send troops to get involved in that conflict. When it comes to the conflict between Israel and Hamas, I mean, that like Israel is America's key strategic ally in that region. And there's also that trickiness of the aid that is sent to Israel under the Bibi Netanyahu administration. But the fact that that aid that is being sent, whether militarily or humanitarian, is wrapped up in aid and military aid that's being sent over to Ukraine. I mean, we're seeing how that gets bunched up in Congress. So those conflicts are connected and the China-Taiwan is connected as well in the sense that these are all things that pose a serious problem to the United States as far as how we get involved, how much we get involved, if we get involved at all. Sorry, I feel like I'm kind of ranting there, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a point there. There's a point there in that like this whole thing is going on right now and you know it runs the risk of all expanding into a broader conflict. You know, I I definitely get World War 3 vibes personally, <laughs> but um I that do. could just I be hate, me. Yeah, I hate saying it, but I do too. And so yeah, I I think there's a sort of connection I wouldn't draw it as as strictly maybe as Nikki Haley would. I mean, I think Iran is basically like a rogue state. Um, Russia and China only like each other because they hate the U.S. and the U.S. hates them. They don't really like each other historically, and I don't think they super like each other now, but they're working together for that express reason. Israel is actually fairly close, I think, with China and and not too distant from Russia in the way that you know America is. So there's a lot of complexities there, and I think Nikki Haley, I worry, kind of has the George Bush, you know, I mean, Axis of Evil is a George Bush quote, right? But uh, she has the kind of George Bush good evil mentality about foreign policy. And I a little bit worry about that. But I do agree that, yes, that like all of these conflicts like run the risk of becoming a broader conflict. Um, and that, I mean, super scares me. Whereas you have people like Vivek who have this America first policy. And so he espouses himself. He even said it. I'm the most pro-Israel candidate on this stage tonight. His idea being that, look, no one should question Israel's actions at all with what's going on in the Gaza Strip right now. The U.S. has no right to question it. The U.N. has no right to question it. Nobody should get involved. Israel needs to do what Israel needs to do. And that's that. And that's just such an incredibly dangerous way of thinking because it's not acknowledging the nuance there at all. That we can question the way that Israel is going about doing things. We can see if it wouldn't be wise to condition the aid that goes over to Israel. We can acknowledge that Hamas is operating in the Gaza Strip, but there are also innocent civilians that are caught in the crossfire. So one of the next things they were talking about in the debate, which I think sadly dovetails nicely with conflicts going on overseas because the Republicans in Congress are trying to wrap this up in kind of an omnibus package here that they know that Democrats won't sign off on is what we do about the crisis at the southern border. So DeSantis had this take that I honestly had heard for the first time saying that here's here's how we're going to solve the border wall here. We're going to tax the money that immigrants in America send home to their families and that's what's going to fund the border wall. And DeSantis also didn't ease up at all on his shooting border crossers suspected of trafficking fentanyl stone cold dead. He got the first of two. I was counting and I, I honestly expected more of his buckle up. There's a new sheriff in town bit 
uh, with the border. Haley talked about deporting seven to eight million illegal immigrants, taking out the cartel with spec ops, and continuing to su- support the uh, the Remain in Mexico policy. So those were two things that I, I found kind of alarming. And of course, acknowledging that, yeah, there is a crisis at the southern border, but I don't know if this is the way to go about resolving it. I do think it's it's interesting taxing money immigrants send to their families in order to fund the border wall. First of all, I don't think the border wall need is is going to be that like the border wall is not that difficult to fund. Apparently, Joe Biden actually got Mexico to pay for it. So, you know, there's something that Trump was not able to deliver on that Joe Biden was. But um, I mean, I know it's true that immigrants send a lot of money back to the countries they come from. I happen to live in an area where there's a sizable Hispanic immigrant population. And you see in like Spanish on like some of the shops, it says like that you can send money through like this, you know, location. And it's because a lot of people do send money overseas. Um, How you would go about taxing it, um, especially if you're talking about immigrants that are undocumented, I don't know how you would do that. Right. And I, I have to wonder, wouldn't it be easier to just like offer up more citizenship so that that way you could tax those workers through like income taxes. That seems to me like it would be a lot easier than trying to institute basically a new tax that has never existed before. But, you know, I guess not. And I I think deporting seven to eight million illegal immigrants, obviously absurd, obviously an enormous like that's an entire nation. So how the hell are you actually going to do that? That that would be an enormous amount of energy to put into deporting people who contribute to our economy, by the way, you know, who are mostly workers. And I understand, you know, there's issues with like, you know, criminals, but I don't think that deporting seven to eight million immigrants is like a reasonable policy. That that seems absurd to me. If you want to take on the cartels, that's, you know, something I think that's potentially possible, but I don't know how you would go about that either. All right. So to kind of close out the debate, I had a couple of highlights put together from Fafake that I think would be worth laughing about. So China, Taiwan, that whole um, fiasco that we were talking about that, of course, a lot of Americans are reasonably concerned about. Vivek has a solution, which is to open an NRA branch in Taiwan, put an AR-15 in the hands of every family, train them all how to use it, and that'll give Xi a taste of American exceptionalism. I heard that and I was just like, who does this play for? And I think Christy even said, like, look, they don't have the same constitution that we do. Like, there's no practical way to even implement something like that. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know Taiwanese law, but you might have to actually break the laws of Taiwan to do that. Right. And and I don't know that they're going to be willing to do that. And I also think like, bro. Just say that you're not going to defend Taiwan. You know, just have the balls to say that. And this is like Vivek's thing, too, is like there are all these. He he doesn't want to actually deal with the fact that he has this America first policy where he would basically be saying, like, fuck it to all of these countries that a lot of Americans care about, like Taiwan and Israel. And so he has all these little quips like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give an AR-15 to every Taiwanese citizen. And like the whole like. BB, you smoke the terrorists on your southern border and I will smoke the terrorists on ours. Like, bro, just say you won't defend these people at all. Just have the guts to say it. Yeah. And then there was this moment where Vivek just leans into all the conspiracy theories that he believes in. So he says the real enemy isn't the truth. It's the deep state. The 2020 election was stolen by big tech. 2016's election was stolen by the National Security Establishment. January 6th was an inside job. I guess that's where we're at with that. The people who were involved in it will not even take responsibility anymore. And the people who, some of whom were in rooms that had to be evacuated before they were stormed by people with fucking weapons are saying the same thing, that it's an inside job. Um, The highly racist and xenophobic uh, great replacement theory is just a thing. That's, that's a true thing that's going on. 
that the Democratic Party has been doing for years. Um, transgenderism is a mental health disorder, which, goodness gracious, that uh, gets me blood red mad. Climate change is a hoax, and it's also a religion. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Were there any that he missed? Is it the, the moon landing, maybe? Should he have brought up JFK? I was going to say, I think Vivek really missed an opportunity. Like, I don't even know what he thinks about lizard people at this point. Are they controlling our government? Are they not? What, what are his thoughts on that? Well, he has a podcast. So I think he did an episode with Alex Jones. So maybe you could find the answers there. I sure okay. won't yeah. be listening. Yeah, I, I won't. I won't look into that. I'm, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I don't blame you. All right. So this was big news for us. If we were still doing our Florida man show, you know, moving on from the debates at this point, if we were still doing our Florida man show, this would be maybe the uh, season finale right here. I don't know. But uh, Ron, uh, Ron DeSantis super PAC, the famous never back down super PAC canceled a major donor event. You might say they backed down from a donor event due to a lack of interest. So they invited 3,000 donors to a luncheon in advance of the fourth debate, which happened this past week. And it would cost $10,000 to get into the luncheon. So you basically pay to get into the luncheon. Casey DeSantis, the governor's wife, uh, gives a speech at the luncheon. And then everybody also gets a ticket to the debate. And they all kind of go over to the debate together. So that was kind of the event. And apparently, they didn't get enough donors. Uh, They didn't have enough interest. They didn't disclose the specifics, like how many people they actually got who were interested. Uh, there was still some sort of after party event that they had. So they still had some people going to some sort of event. But apparently there were not 3000 people who were willing to donate $10,000 or more to the DeSantis campaign, which ha- has to make you wonder at this point about the longevity of the campaign. So what do you think, Ryan? Do you think this... Uh, this Florida man is going to have to pack his bags and head on back to Miami or what? I don't even think it'd be good for him to head back to Miami at this point as far as, I mean, obviously he has to as a governor, but insofar as his presidential campaign is concerned, because as Gavin Newsom pointed out for us in that debate, DeSantis is getting his ass kicked in his own state. So I think this is start, is telling us that the writing is on the wall and uh it's, it's just an embarrassment, frankly. I mean, obviously $10,000 is a lot to folks like you or I to get into a luncheon, but these are people with deep pockets, which is why they're donors connected to a super PAC. And uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to think like if there's better ways to have gone about this. I mean, Casey DeSantis, I mean, she has a background in, in communications and media. So, I mean, she, it's not like she's, like a crappy public speaker. Um, I mean, I've never, <laughs> to be fair, I've never heard her speak, but like she at least has a background in that. But I'm just thinking like, even if they were like, all right, it's going to be a luncheon. We're going to screen a movie. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, like, I mean, there was, there's a lot of Disney movies that are really good, but like they kind of alienated that whole, like they can't even show like an early screening of the new, uh, What's the one with all the uh, emotions having uh, characters? Oh, Inside Out. Inside Out. Yeah, they, they can't even like do an early screening of the new Inside Out because they alienated Disney. So, well, I was going to say they could maybe do a, a screening of the new Daily Wire movie. Yeah, or maybe Dinesh D'Souza's got something that he could kind of mm, show an early preview to. But yeah, uh, it's yikes. Yeah, and I mean, I, I got to imagine. Whoever is behind the super PAC, they were like, look, Ron, we can't have you speak at this luncheon. People just don't find you interesting enough. People just don't really care. Let Casey take the lead. She's a lot more interesting. People want to hear her speak a lot more than they want to hear you speak. And somehow that still didn't work. Somehow that still didn't get the uh, the donors to bite on this one. So, you know, who knows? We don't really know the details. Maybe they're all over at a luncheon at Nikki Haley's place. Who knows? But. Either way, they're apparently not attending the Never Back Down luncheon. Technically, if they backed down from Ron DeSantis, they could always never back down for Nikki Haley until they True. ultimately do back down for Nikki Haley. But True. Yeah. as a sidebar, I finally figured out 
what Ron DeSantis' smile reminds me of. I've been having this feeling for weeks where, you know, like where you see an actor in a, in a show or a movie and you're like, shoot, I've seen you somewhere. I just can't figure out where. And it bugs you until you IMDb it and figure it out. So DeSantis's smile reminds me of like bad luck, Brian a bit, but also everybody's smile when they take a school photo, just that awkward where they're like, sit up straighter, uh, turn the stool a little bit, uh, bring your knees together, tilt your head and uh, smile. And then like your smile is halfway formed and they click, 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 you know, they take the picture and then you finally get it and uh, it looks terrible, but your mom loves it. That's his smile. Yeah, I actually super agree with that. In that moment, the the famous meme where he's like, I won't let you down. And then he smiles. Yeah. <laughs> that totally looks like a high school photo. Yeah, I could totally yeah. picture that. That's hilarious. My favorite is when he'll do it after a rehearsed speech style response to something that's supposed to be off the cuff. And then he'll do the smile. Or when he uh, says to Nikki Haley that's not true. And then he'll do the weird smile while she's talking about like something she's accusing him of that in context. That's my favorite use of the Ron DeSantis awkward middle school photo smile. Somebody else, I think Mitt Romney said it reminded him of like him having a constant toothache, which I could also say. Yeah, I could see that he does kind of look like he's in a lot of pain, which speaking of someone who could be in a lot of pain, there may be a new almost president on the block, um, and that is Liz Cheney, somebody who was obviously ousted from their congressional seat by a Republican primary challenger and somebody who became very prominent for her opposition to Donald Trump. And obviously, her last name speaks volumes, daughter of Dick Cheney, the <laughs> shadow president behind George W. Bush, some might say. I don't know if I buy that, but some might say that an American um, dictator in his own right. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, you know, some people might say she's the shadow president behind Joe Biden. I have no idea. I'm sure somebody out there is saying that. But in any case, Liz Cheney has said that she is open to running for president as a third party and potentially also open to starting a new conservative non-Trump party, because obviously the Republican Party is now basically owned by Trump and the Trump wing. Um, but she clarifies and she says that she would only run if she thought that this would not hurt Biden, which has to make you wonder what the what the point is if you don't actually think you're going to win. Like if you think that your chance of winning is a reason for you not to run, why run? But yeah, I thought this was was an interesting piece of news. I mean, it was very off the cuff. This was not a serious announcement. She's not like announcing an exploratory committee or anything, but I, I was I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts on that were, Ryan, given Liz Cheney's background and given that, you know, she doesn't have a ton of popularity with her own party at this point, unfortunately. Yeah. So Liz Cheney just put out a book called Oath and Honor. It's a memoir about kind of the rise of Trumpism, her stance against it and a warning for the future. And she's been doing the podcast circuits. She's been doing the legacy press circuits. She's been doing all the morning shows. So this is just kind of a question that seems to continually get put to her while she's on more or less a book tour, essentially. So I don't know. I mean, it's there's things I admire about Liz Cheney, most of which are not related to her politics, but are related to her being one of like a few people that are brave enough to stand against what's going on in the Republican Party, which to be fair is no small feat. I mean, a lot of these people who even are like literally like as low as law clerks who were involved in the many trials against Trump are getting mass death threats against themselves and, and their families. So opposing this is a courageous act, but it just doesn't seem like she's going to reach any persuadable voters from the Trump camp to come over and listen to what she's saying. It just seems like she's speaking to people who already get the message. I believe she got her profile and courage award from the JFK library and museum. Uh, It's, I just don't know what good it would do. Um, I think that 
you're not going to start a Republican style third party that's going to gain any traction. I think the Republican party needs to learn from its own mistakes. And I think it's going to get a lot uglier before it gets better. With that being said, I was relieved that she said that she would drop out if she thought it would hurt Biden, because that was my thought was that this could be a danger to the democratic incumbent. Yeah. I I would echo almost everything you're saying. I, I obviously, I think, you know, I've spoken a little fun at Liz Cheney there. I do think, you know, I don't discount that Liz Cheney basically sacrificed her career to stand up to what she and I both see as an authoritarian threat to this country. And so, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Liz Cheney for sure, even though we're going to have pretty significant disagreements. I will say I don't totally discount the idea of her starting a sort of conservative non-Trump party simply because, you know, I agree with you. I don't think she's going to get any votes at this point in time. But, you know, I do think there are probably not a ton of people, but there is probably a solid like 10 percent of the Republican Party that looks at the current state of the Republican Party and says, I don't really like that. I wish I could go back to kind of the George Bush days when people seemed a little bit nicer and I didn't have to kind of choose between a party that I have huge disagreements with on like economics and and foreign policy over someone who's potentially (laughs) wants to be a dictator for a day. And, you know, yeah, I, I kind of agree. It would definitely be hard for it to gain traction. But I don't totally discount the idea of it just because you never really know. So I don't totally discount the idea of it. And I absolutely agree with that. And I apologize if I was sounding dismissive of her starting a new conservative kind of non-Trump party. I just think the Republican Party writ large is going to need to go through a firestorm and just like very very slowly emerge from the ashes of it before they can kind of reckon with what they've become. Because one of the things that she says, I believe this is her, or at least she says something in the spirit of this is that Trump has recreated the Republican party in his image. So I think that's going to take a while to undo. So if she has something, yeah. So if she has something there to kind of like fall back on or that she's been working on for years and has a bunch of kind of like-minded individuals who share conservative values that might provide something to kind of fall back on. Um, but, you know, I think there's, there's a reckoning, you know, coming that party's way and it's, it's going to be ugly. For sure. I think there needs to be a massive change in the Republican party's thinking on things, but who who knows how that will come about if it does. But Liz Cheney is always a topic that <laughs> makes me kind of uh, morose for the state of the Republican Party and, you know, American politics in general. So we can move on to sunnier topics, which, of course, would be Doug Burgum, who I say is still running for president from possibly a bunker somewhere while a deep state plant pretends to be Doug Burgum saying that Doug Burgum's not running for president. But obviously, I know you have different views on that. so. Tell us about this new sort of version of our old segment called uh, Feeling the Burgum with Doug Burgum. And this time it's going to be Feeling the Burgum in memory of the Doug Burgum campaign. Um, So go ahead. Yeah. And in the interest of that, Kevin, I would just encourage you to keep an eye on the boot because I think if the deep state is going to make a mistake, they're going to send out their Doug Burgum bot or uh, actor with the boot that he's wearing because he tore his ACL on the wrong foot. So I think that might be a way to catch them in the act if they are in the act. But yeah, Yeah, that's true. That'd be a key. Yeah. So since Doug Burgum has dropped out of the campaign, um, that doesn't mean that we're going to stop this segment. As a matter of fact, we're going to keep it going all the way through our coverage of the 2024 election, but we are going to use it just to talk about things that we're feeling the Burgum about. So we'll alternate weeks. Kevin, I'm going to take this week for something I've been feeling the Burgum about for a long time. And that is Senator Tommy Tuberville, who has been holding up military promotions for 
nearly 10 months now, he finally lifted his hold that he was placing on over 450 military promotions. Now, why was he doing this, you might ask? Well, he did this as an act of protest to an abortion policy that stated members of the military who are based in red states that have stringent abortion laws could take leave time to travel out of state to seek an abortion and be reimbursed for their transportation expenses. So I was surprised to see that a senator could do this at all, hold up all these promotions. I mean, I think that's something that needs to be talked about. But Tuberville finally backed off. And a few people commented on this. I want to get to that before we get to Tuberville here. So President Biden said, quote, in the end, this was all pointless. Senator Tuberville and the Republicans who stood with him needlessly hurt hundreds of service members and military families and threatened our national security, all to push a partisan agenda. I hope no one forgets what he did. And I'm really feeling the burden about that statement. I, I hope nobody forgets that he did that. The damage that that did, the fact that that made America look weak at a time where America needs to look strong. When there are conflicts going on in the world, like Kevin said earlier in the podcast, that kind of make one conjure up the idea of World War III. Um, I think we should not be doing things to make the American military look weak. And I thought Republicans are the ones that always wanted it to look strong, that always wanted to support the troops. Well, this seems like it's doing the exact opposite. So once he backed down, Chuck Schumer has moved forward with pushing through hundreds of these promotions that had been stalled, that left all these members of the service and their family in the wind for all these months. It even pushed some into retirement just because they had no freaking idea where they were going to be, if they were going to have to put their kids in a different school system, if they should start looking into that. Um, just all this horrible stuff. And Chuck Schumer said of it, quote, Senator Tuberville held out for months, hurt national security and military families, and didn't get anything he wanted. Only thing is with that, only um, incorrect thing about that is that Mr. Tuberville apparently did get what he wanted. He said to reporters, it's been a long fight. We fought hard. We did the right thing for the unborn and for our military, fighting back against executive overreach. And he ultimately said that this was a net positive because he brought attention to the issue of abortion. So <laughs> where any reasonable person would argue that he held up all these promotions and got nothing that he wanted, I guess we can get a little bit philosophical about this and ask the question of, well, what were his victory conditions? Was he looking to put an end to this policy? Was he looking to raise awareness? Did he lose? And now he's just saying that to justify all the time that he spent hurting America's military, who, by the way, volunteer to serve this country. There's no draft going on. They're volunteering to serve this country. And you're doing something to disincentivize their service, their sacrifice for this country. Look, if his victory conditions here are uh, the fact that he just wanted to bring attention to it, I guess in that sense, he succeeded in the same way that Japan's victory conditions during World War II were not to win. They were to go out in a blaze of glory. So ultimately, Tommy Tuberville, you're a fucking asshole. You're one of my least favorite people. I'm really feeling the burgum about that. And uh, yeah, congratulations. I mean, you made America's military look weak at a time when Russia is on the warpath. China is hungrily eyeballing Taiwan. And military bases are being targeted by Iran, resulting in the deaths of service members and uh, causing military responses. And yeah, I mean, there's still military promotions that are being held up. This isn't completely over. So there are 11 of the highest ranking military officers, like people who like are admirals of whole fucking fleets, like four-star generals. Their promotions are still being held up. So this isn't over, but we stopped some of the uh, the holdup here. So I don't know. 
was ultimately a very frustrating thing. Really uh, burgumed up about it. And uh, I'm glad to see that it's that it's over and that these great members of our military are able to figure out the next steps of their lives, get increased pay, and get a well-deserved promotion that they worked hard for. So that's what I'm feeling the burgum about this week. Folks, thank you for listening. And we will be back next week with more coverage of the 2024 presidential campaign. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.